Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Nearest Pole. Published in 1906 and written by Robert E. Peary, this story follows some of the Arctic travels that took place in the late 1800s and early 1900s. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. As always, I am extremely grateful to all of the patrons and anchor supporters that support the show financially with a monthly contribution. Whether it's $1 or $5, Your monthly contribution allows me to bring more episodes to those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast. It would also be amazing if you could. Please leave a review and comment in iTunes or leave the show a rating in Spotify. And if you're not already please be sure to subscribe to the show. If you would like to say hello, you can say hello to me at boytosleep.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Nearest the Pole Chapter 1 When an expedition starts from distant and mysterious regions for an uncertain length of time, and particularly when its objective point is the frozen heart of the Arctic Circle, it is natural that those who know and are interested in its objects and plans should turn with interest to its personnel and its surroundings and environment while en route to the scene of action. The opening scenes of an Arctic voyage are comparatively familiar to these conversant with Arctic literature. The main features of the play are much the same. A crowded and littered ship regrets at leaving, confusion, and if the weather be decent, an effort to get into shape or if the weather be bad, a surrender by most of the party to abject misery in cramped quarters. In the present instance, some of these features were entirely absent, and others appeared only in a mild form. Experience and a roomy ship almost completely obviated the lumbering of the decks, Beyond the inevitable and inseparable feature of the coal, a portion of which must at first always be carried on deck, 
Such few things as were dumped on deck at the last moment were quickly and readily disposed of, and quarters specially arranged for the party and on deck ensured fair room for each member of the expedition. As to regrets, no pronounced symptoms were noticeable in the others, and I had made the voyage too often to consider it more than a trip to Europe. Under these favourable circumstances, let us look at the personnel of the party, whose home for an uncertain length of time in the ice of the polar sea was to be good ship Roosevelt. First the captain, Robert A. Bartlett, sailing master and ice navigator, who was 30 years of age, 5 feet 10 inches tall, and weighed 174 pounds. Bartlett is one of the new generation of Bartlett's, a hardy family of Newfoundland sailors and navigators, almost all of whom have been associated with Arctic work. A great uncle was master of the Tigress when that ship picked up the drifting flow party of the Polaris expedition. Two uncles, Samuel and John, were respectively master and mate of the Panther in which Hayes and Bradford visited Melville Bay. Recently, Captain Sam was master of the Canadian government steamer Neptune, which wintered in Hudson Bay, and both of these, as well as Harry, a younger uncle, had been masters of my ships during one or the other of my several voyages north. Robert was mate in the Windward, in the expedition of 98 to 99. Blonde, smooth-shaven and close-cropped, stockily built and clear-eyed, he had already been farther north in these regions than any of the other Newfoundland ice masters, and his youth, ambition, and the Bartlett blood all counted in his favour. Moses Bartlett mate, a second cousin of the captain, was 47 years old, 6 feet high, and weighed 184 pounds. He had already been as far north as Cape Sabine three times, twice as mate of my ships and once of mate of the Neptune, and had also spent a year on this ship in Hudson Bay in the employ of the Canadian government. Weather-beaten, grizzled, and keen of eye, he was regarded as one of the best of the Newfoundland ice pilots. George A. Wardwell, chief engineer, was a native of Bucksport, Maine, 44 years of age, 5 foot 11 inches tall, and weighed 240 pounds, Acting as engineer in the shipyard in which the Roosevelt was built and intimately employed in her construction, he was deeply interested in her proposed work and anxious to join the expedition. His phlegmatic temperature 
and evident capacity for work, combined with non-use of liquor and tobacco, were all strong points in his favour. John Murphy Boatswain was a native Newfoundlander, 31 years of age, 5 feet 11 inches tall, and weighed 165 pounds. Sailor and fisherman from the age of 18, he had also been as far north as Cape Sabine on the Neptune, and had wintered with her in Hudson Bay. Murta J. Malone, assistant engineer, was a native of Portland, Maine, 49 years of age, 5 feet 7 and a half inches tall, and weighed 150 pounds. Dr. Louis J. Wolfe, surgeon of the expedition, was a native of Oregon, 30 years of age, 5 feet 9 inches tall, weighed 150 pounds, was a graduate of the Cooper Medical College, San Francisco, California, and becoming later house surgeon at St. Vincent's Hospital, Portland, Oregon, and still later assistant attending physician at the Cornell University Medical College and of the Outdoor Medical Dispensary of Bellevue Hospital, Ross G. Marvin, secretary and assistant, was a native of Elmira, N.Y., a graduate of Cornell University, 25 years of age, 6 feet tall and weighed 160 pounds. Subsequently, he had three years of naval training on board the ship of St. Mary's. Charles Percy, my steward, was a native of Newfoundland, 54 years of age, 5 feet 10 inches high, and weighed 180 pounds. He had previously made a summer voyage as far north as Cape Sabine in my ship, the Diana, in 1899, and later had spent two years with Mrs. Peary and myself at Cape Sabine, from 1900 to 1902. Subsequently, he had been in my employ as resident in charge of Eagle Island. Matthew Henson, my personal attendant, was a coloured native of the District of Columbia, 39 years of age, 5 feet 6 and 3 quarter inches high, and weighed 145 pounds in my employ in one capacity or another, most of the time since I took him to Nicaragua with me in 1888, and a member of all my Arctic expeditions, his quality and capabilities were fully known. The crew and firemen, with the exception of one of the latter, Charles Clark, a native of Massachusetts, were natives in Newfoundland of the usual type of sailors and sealers common to that island. One of the firemen had been with me on the Eagle in 1886, and previously to that had been on one of the whalers in search of the Greeley party in 1883. 
Another fireman had been north with me in the Hope in 1898, and one of the sailors had made a voyage to Hudson Bay. Next, after the personnel of the expedition, comes their environment. In the present case, no member of the party was quartered below deck. The after cabin for officers closed down against the propeller post, and the forecastle for the crew, down in the eyes of the ship forward, to be found in all the old-fashioned ships, and even in those recently built for the Arctic work, were lacking on the Roosevelt's, and in their stead were light, roomy accommodations on deck. As to the furnishings of the rooms, there was little to be said. Beginning forward, it is well known that Jack, particularly if a Newfoundland sailor, does not take much a brick a brack to see with him, his outfit comprising only his clothes and his bedding. There were, therefore, no oil paintings or etchings on the walls of the forward house. Two tiers of folding bunks, a stove, a table, and the seaman's chest for chairs completed the list. The furnishings of the after house were hardly less simple. In the port saloon, which was lighted by two 12-inch ports on the side, and a window looking forward, a leather cushioned locker extended around three sides of the room, and this with an extension table screwed to the floor, a clock, a little library, presented to the ship by the Seaman's Friend Society, and a brief notice to the members of the expedition, stating that the object of the expedition, what was expected of the members and what success would mean to them, completed the furniture. Here the ship's officers, except the captain, messed. In the captain's room, at the after end of the port side of the deck, was a folding berth, a wash basin, a table and a camp chair, and these with the chronometer, a trunk and several pictures and photos on the walls completed its furnishings. At the after end of the starboard side of the deck house was my own room. This room, owing to the thoughtful care of Mrs. Peary and friends, was more luxuriously furnished than any room occupied by me on my previous expeditions. The room, 10 by 16, was also larger than I had ever had on a previous expedition. The room occupied by Mrs. Peary and myself at Redcliffe was 7 by 12 feet, and the one at Anniversary Lodge, 8 by 18 feet. But one of the most annoying circumstances of the long Arctic winter is always the crowding of cramped quarters. The inability to move without knocking against something. The feeling of oppression. This on top of the contracted horizon and feeling of compression from the protracted darkness is at times almost intolerable 
and in planning the Roosevelt quarters, I felt that I was justified in giving myself a little more room. Two ports and a window looking aft lighted the room and, as in the captain's room, a door opened aft onto the quarter deck, while another gave me direct access to the engine room. A berth, a table and a chair are of course essentials and were present. Then came the piece to resistance, the beautiful pianola given me by my friend H.H. H. Benedict. This with a rack of nearly 150 music rolls, popular operas, marches, waltzes and ragtime was screwed to the deck at the forward end of the room. Over it was a large framed portrait of the founder of the expedition, Morris K. Jessup, flanked on either side by an etching of President Roosevelt and a photo of Judge Darling, Assistant Secretary of the Navy. In the forward corner was a stationary watchstand and on the inboard wall a series of shelves containing a small Arctic library, a few books of reference, and a few standard works of fiction. A chest of drawers, a cellaret, a table, a wicker easy chair from Mr. Jessop, a warm brown rug from Mrs. Peary, pictures of the home folks and home places and Arctic maps upon the walls, completed the fittings, not including a trunk and two chests of stores in the doctor's department, for which there was at present no room below decks. Wednesday, July 26th, 05. All things come to an end at last, even the starting of this expedition. The Roosevelt got away from the terminal pier at North Sydney at 2pm. With the exception of the quarter deck, which is loaded with bags of coal, to keep the ship from trimming too deep by the head, the deck is not nearly so bad, littered and cumbered as on previous voyages. The cases of oil and a few miscellaneous casks are practically all that is not below hatches. We have on board something over 500 tonnes of coal, besides our supplies and equipment. In capacity, the Roosevelt comes fully up to my expectations. There is a quarter of beef in the rigging, two or three sheep among the coal bags aft, and a tank and several casks of water on deck, besides the full tanks below. Once underway, I have to make no stops this side of Cape York. It is already late in the season, and every day now is precious. Percy, the steward, has purchased two small porkers, Dennis and Mike, which are running contentedly around the deck, and if they escape the dogs, which is very doubtful, they may furnish us roast pork for our Christmas dinner. 
Outside the harbour, a little swell caused by the easterly breeze taking the ship broadside on sets her rolling a bit until she straightens out on her course to pass St Paul's Light. The next thing in order was the stowing of the miscellaneous packages, which during the past days have been put in the various rooms, particularly my room, to prevent their getting mixed up with the provisions in the hold. This was readily accomplished by supper time, at least to the extent of permitting a passage through the room and allowing access to the bunk, the table and a camp chair. Immediately after supper, we ran into dense fog and are now ploughing our way through it across Cabot Strait, the southern gateway on the gulf blowing our whistle as if we were in Long Island Sound for we are crossing the track of the inward and outward bound traffic. Thursday, July 27th. Heavy thunderstorms last night with electrical accompaniments as vivid as those of gulf storms on the southern voyages. Past Cape Angle on the Newfoundland coast at breakfast time, and Red Island and the bold cliffs on Cape St George afternoon. Soon after dinner, an alarm of fire was caused by the catching of one of the main deck beams over the uptake from the boilers. A stream from one of the fire hose, which coupled on in readiness and needed but the opening of a valve to turn the water on, quickly extinguished the fire, which was apparently caused by the more gaseous nature of the Sydney coal and the combustion and heat in the stack inside of the boiler. It was then discovered that several sections of the water tube boilers were leaking, and the fires were immediately drawn to let the boilers cool for examination. The Roosevelt steaming along under the Scotch boiler only, the process of stowage, both about the decks and in the rooms, has continued today, and most of the oil has been put down in the forepeak. A fine day, though, and occasional showers, and the Roosevelt as steady as if steaming up the North River. On Friday, July 28th, there was a continuance of the fine weather, running under scotch boiler only all night and day. The engineers working on the armies. The chief tonight fears the damage is more serious than at first anticipated. At intervals during the day, I have been comparing the readings of the log with the revolutions of the engines at varying speeds, with results fully up to my expectations. Another incipient fire in the same place was immediately extinguished, and I have had portions of the beams cut away and other means taken to prevent a recurrence. At supper time, we passed four or five small bergs, which had come through the straits. Fine weather with smooth sailing till evening, when the fog shut down on us, 
just before this, two large steamers passed us heading for the straits, and one hung out the signal, wish you a pleasant voyage, to which we replied, goodbye. It is light now till 9pm, and it seems good to be again approaching the Arctic day. Saturday, July 29th, a dirty night, in the dense fog which filled the Bell Isle graveyard of ships, Point Armour Light was invisible until apparently hanging over the masthead, and then it was a matter of feeling our way from foghorn to foghorn through the straits. We could hear two or three large steamers that were laying to, blowing their double blasts and numbers of bergs added to the uncertainty and anxiety of the passage. Captain Bartlett and myself up all night. At breakfast time, just north of Chateau Bay, we ran out of the wall of fog into the bright sunshine and a field of beautiful icebergs. Cape York is 1,500 miles from here, running northward all day, just off the Labrador coast, in alternate fog and sunshine. Have written two or three brief personal letters, which we shall leave at Domino Run tonight, and before heading across Davis Strait for Greenland. This is necessitated by the fog having shut us out of Shadow Bay and Battle Harbour, on Sunday, July 30th, we ran into Domino Run late last night without dropping anchor, and Captain Bartlett pulled ashore with the letters. Coming off again at once, he learned that the ice was against the coast as far down as Cape Harrigan. Going into the run, it was clear as a bell, and while lying too, waiting for the captain's return. The stars twinkled as in winter. A biting wind whistled through the rigging, and a brilliant curtain aurora waved across the northern sky, while ashore the dogs were howling merrily. Pacing the bridge, these familiar sights and sounds stirred me with the call of the polar mystery. Might it not be possible that this breath, this presence, as it were, of the land of the great night was reaching down far beyond its usual haunts to greet and welcome my coming? When we steamed out less than an hour after our arrival, the fog had settled down again and the temporary jamming of the rudder chains while negotiating the narrow channel caused a slight flurry but resulted in nothing serious. Clear of the harbour, our course was set northeast by east to bring us to the Greenland coast, well up Davis's Strait, dense fog all night and today, with very smooth sea several narrow shaves from icebergs during the night, but this morning we were in deep water and clear of them. A light breeze from the southeast, 
just enough to fill our head sails, foresail, spanker and balloon stay sails, but with no push to it. There will be no more sailing lights for us, side or masthead or stern. We are beyond the world's highways now, and shall see no sail or smoke except our own, until we return. Am feeling physically something like myself again. I did not realise until we were actually off and the relaxation came, how nearly fogged out I was with the incessant work. And the last two weeks of intolerable heat in New York, were it not for our boilers, I should feel very content. In regard to the smoothness of the sea, peacefulness of weather, entire absence of ice and scarcity of bergs, the voyage from Sydney to the Arctic Circle has been most unusual even for this season of the year, with the exception of the few rolls just outside of Sydney Harbour, there has not been enough motion of the ship to spill a glass of water. The day has been one of typical Disco Bay summer weather. On Saturday, August 5th, a perfect Arctic summer night, clear and brilliant. At two this morning we passed Godhaven, the little place lying under the southward facing cliffs of Disco, which is the capital of the Northern Inspectorate of Greenland. Here, 19 years ago, I got my first taste of Arctic life, and made plans and indulged in dreams, some of which have since materialised and others may. Several times since then, I have anchored into the harbour, till I know the little settlement as I do the streets of Washington. Though we are now over three degrees beyond the Arctic Circle, I am sitting in my cabin, with window and ports open, in my shirt sleeves, wearing clothing I wore in New York before I left, writing in entire comfort. Later, a light breeze from the westward, keen after its passage over the middle pack, makes the blue waters look like frosted steel and sharpens the western cliffs of Disco, along which we are steaming into almost startling clearness. On Sunday, August 6th, an hour or two of fog at midnight, then overcast, with a light following breeze barely enough to fill the sails at first, then freshens the southwest and brings up a sea which would give the Roosevelt considerable motion were it not for the sails which hold her almost as steady as a rock. Occasionally the top of waves slaps over the port rail, but not enough to do any harm. The base of Sanderson's Hope, seen and named by John Davis 300 years ago, was visible under the fog in the early morning. Our noon ships give us 73 degrees north latitude, and at 6pm we passed the Duck Islands on our starboard beam, near enough to see with the glasses 
the old whaler's lookout on the summit. The sea and fresh breeze continued all the evening, and there is evidently very dirty weather to the south of us. No sign of ice yet. On Monday, August 7th, we ran away from the wind during the night. Cape York was visible at 2pm and at 7pm. We ran past the point of it for the Eskimo settlement beyond. The run across Melville Bay had been made in 25 hours. No ice or ice sky was seen, and there is evidently no ice in the bay this year. Going ashore, I found four tents at the village, and learned that some 15 families are located to the eastward, at Meteorite Island and other places. Among them are some of my best men. Told the natives to get their things ready to come on board on my return, and going after the ship steamed eastward. Stopped off the first settlement and, without dropping anchor, shouted to the men to get ready to move. Then onto Meteorite Island, where I found four tents and learned that four other families were still farther east in the bay. These I shall not see, as I cannot take the time to go so far out of my way. At Meteorite Island are three of my old men, and in an hour or two they are all on board with their belongings, and we steam away, leaving the place deserted. Back to the next settlement and the operation is repeated. Six families move all their belongings on board and desert their village in about three hours. On August the 8th, Tuesday, it was after breakfast when we finished at the last settlement and I lay down for a short nap while crossing Cape York Bay, having been up all night. Again at Cape York, the tents were quickly struck, and with all their belongings, the new men came on board. At 2pm, we steamed around the Cape and headed north to join the Eric at North Star Bay. While passing Pedowick Glacier, a steamer was seen to the westward steaming south. The glasses showed her to be small and schooner-rigged. On arriving at North Star Bay this morning at 2am, learned from the Eric that the steamer we saw was the Danish steamship Fox, here for the purpose of selecting a site for a settlement. The Eric came alongside and I transferred to her with Marvin and Matt to make a round of the settlements to the north and to hunt walrus while Roosevelt goes direct to Etar to overhaul machinery and prepare for the ice. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this book. I also hope that you're feeling a little tired. Until next time, good night.